It was 48 years that I lived as a Catholic and 22 of those years was as a devout Roman Catholic priest. And during all that time I knew very little about the history of the Catholic Church. I had little bits here and there, but I had no overview of church history when it relates to the Pope, the Papacy, and the Papal Church. And it is essential that one understands the history, and that's what I want to deal with. I want to deal with the overview of the history of this Papal Church. And it is a dramatic contrast between the Papal Church as it now is, a enormous worldwide structure of over one billion people, at least on record, many of those don't practice, but at least on paper, and a structure that is not just purportedly spiritual, but is political, and has its representatives in 174 nations, its papal ambassadors. So it's a, a huge structure that is politically and religiously received by the world. Now when we compare that to the beginnings of the believing church in Rome, where we had some group of believers meeting in people's homes with individual pastors leading the Brotherhood of Believers, when we compare that to what now is purportedly the Church of Rome, you couldn't get a more dynamic contrast. Because the, the early believers and the pastors that taught them trusted in the written word of God as it was in the Gospels that they had in the procession and the writings of the Apostles and the Old Testament. They depended on the written word of God and they, they saw the Gospel as the power of God unto salvation. And that was the very theme of Paul's letter to the Romans, where he commended them for their faith, that their faith was known throughout the whole world. Paul begins his letter to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 8, First, I thank my God, through Jesus Christ, for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, and in the gospel of his son. That was the gospel that the early believers held to, that the gospel truly was the power of God unto salvation for them, as they withstood years of horrendous suffering for the faith, and stood strong in that gospel for which the Apostle Paul commended them. So, it would have been horrendous to them and unbelievable that a bishop of Rome or an elder of Rome could be called the most holy Roman pontiff. It would have been just unthinkable for those early believers. Or that any group of believers calling itself Christian could say that grace comes through rituals or sacraments. Or that Mary, the wonderful believer, could be called the most holy one. Things like that would be just unthinkable. And they who held to a brotherhood of believers because of what Christ Jesus said, One is your Lord and Master, and ye are all brethren. One of the brethren was the pastor. But they were all brothers and sisters in the Lord. How ununderstandable would it be to these people to have a, a hierarchy where the priest is accountable to the bishop and the bishops are accountable to cardinals and the cardinals are accountable to the pope. 
and that's only part of the hierarchical structure, a summary of the main ingredients. How unthinkable. One is your Lord and Master, and ye are all brethren. That's the way the early believers lived their faith and trusted in the Lord and withstood persecution. There was some horrendous persecution. The most famous, you probably remember, was under Nero in the year 64, where so many of the believers suffered. I went to the Forum in Rome, and I saw there the the place where so many of the believers were burnt as torchlights for the games, and so the spectacle also in the Colosseum. I went there to Rome, and as a priest, I walked in the floors of the Colosseum, wondering, is the faith that I stand in the same faith that these people died for? I had my doubts even as a priest as I walked around the Colosseum, and it was utterly different, the faith of the men and women who suffered under Nero. And so, the beginnings of the faith in Rome and what has become the Church of Rome are totally different things. The spread of the faith in Rome was intensive and it grew immensely so that there were many, many believers right across the city in different, um, different groups of believers meeting in homes and it was under Diocletian, the emperor, that there was some of the most severe and horrific tortures, just to read of them and the sufferings that the believers underwent. But far from exterminating the gospel and far from putting the true gospel underfoot, the, the persecutors purified the believers and their pastors and they stood strong. And it's, it is remarkable, the faith of the early church, the believers in the city of Rome. It's just unbelievably strong and remarkable. And what happened? What huge change took place? And the huge change was a political change, whereby the emperor Constantine purportedly got into Christianity. He was going to be baptized 24 years later after his so-called conversion because he wanted to continue to sin and so that baptism would wipe away his sins after 24 years. And it was then that Eusebius baptized him. But he purportedly was converted, even though he wasn't baptized, but he was converted. And... He, together with the emperor in the east, Lucinius, whom he hadn't conquered as yet, the two of them together recognized paganism and Christianity. Both were recognized, but Christianity for the first time. And so we had the recognition of the Christians as a true church that could be legally okay in the Empire. Now, if it had stopped there, maybe there would have been temptations to compromise, but it didn't stop there. Constantine took over the reins of government in spiritual matters just as he had. He started dictating how things should be. And just as there were vice regions of people who looked after different parts of the empire for him. He thought that in the empire there should be main churches set up in each city and that there should be four main cities whereby the Christian world would be controlled from these four major cities. And they were Antioch and Alexandria, Jerusalem and Rome. These were the four places that were chosen, and in each of these cities there was a church with a particular elder chosen to be the head church, and that that elder was to rule over other elders in that area. So this idea, the beginning of a hierarchy, was a political dictate 
that the church was now to be run in the same way as the empire was run. And it is sad that, for the most part, the believers gave in to the dictates. They were no longer under persecution. They were free. And they um, were giving in to the desires of the emperor. And they were following along. Of course, the church in Rome was not St. Peter's or anything like it. Because the whole idea of Peter being in Rome, which is a tradition, is a later on tradition, and there was um, no idea of claiming to be in the shoes of St. Peter. That comes about uh, particularly with Innocent I in 401. But uh, a church in Rome is chosen as being the main church, and similarly in uh, Jerusalem, and similarly in Antioch and Alexandria. And then there is a vying between these four patriarchs as to who is the greatest. The very thing that Christ Jesus warned against. There is now a, a desiring that the recognition be given to these dioceses as they're called. And the head of the diocese, a patriarch or a chief who's uh, overseeing the other elders. He is the chief bishop. Uh, so this is the way the things are being set up and it is, it is really sad to see what had been believers now falling under this system and what is heartbreaking is to see that the, the so-called Bishop of Rome is now looking for glory for himself that far from being a Bible believer and pointing to Christ, he is looking for honor for himself, that they're arguing that if Rome is the queen of cities and people look to her as the richest, the most wealthy and the ruling power of Rome, why should not her bishop be king of bishops? So we have the, the beginning of the bishops of Rome looking to be superior not only to the other three patriarchs, but to other places in the world. So, it is, it is really sad to see that. Now, I must say that it, we must make uh, a note of the fact that while this was happening, and the Christian world was coming under this umbrella, as it were, of a political system being set up by the Roman Emperor, we had true believers at the same time who in no way were touched by any of this. We had the amazing Vaudois, a whole story in themselves, coming up from uh, southern, uh, from northern Italy into southern France. And of course later on spreading to different parts of Europe as the evangelized. We had the amazing stories of Vaudois later on becoming the Waldenses. We have such as the Anabaptists, and many other groups, the Albigenses, we know a lot about them from their lifestyle, their agriculture, and the tremendous lives they lived, even though Rome has tried to darken their name, but still the true faith of the Albigenses in France comes out. So we have many other groups in right at this period and right through history, who did not come under this political system. But we're talking about the way Christendom was being shaped independent of these true believers. It was at the end of the 4th century, we saw it was at the beginning of the 4th century, in um, 313, that the Edict of Milan took place. That towards the end of the 4th century, when you begin to study what was being taught in Rome and in other parts of the empire that we see that the gospel, the power of God unto salvation is for the most part gone. We do have exceptions and we do have noteworthy exceptions like uh, Augustine being preaching grace uh, in a remarkable way which is not exactly as we would want it but still emphatic but for the most part, and even with Augustine, there is also a sacramentalism by which it is presupposed that a person becomes a Christian when water is poured on them or they're immersed 
underwater by a ritual called baptism, that this is the way a person actually becomes Christian. So the ceremonies were over, had overtaken the true gospel, and that is really sad because that is towards the end of the the 4th century, coming into the 5th century. And then, established quite clearly now, is the lazy clergy split, that the clergy are at a different level, that they are to be looked up to, they are the ones who dictate, they are the ones who tell you what you are to believe, and it is no longer that the word of God is to dictate the truths of faith, the clergy become a dictating power. And at the end of the 5th century, we have also the idea of the, the elder being a priest, the sacrificial priesthood by which it is purported that we have a priesthood that can offer sacrifice. The beginnings of that, it took many centuries to develop into what it now is. There's no mention of a sacrificial priesthood in the New Testament, besides the one high priesthood of Christ Jesus and his finished sacrifice, but a continuing sacrificial priesthood is nowhere in the pages of the New Testament. But this started the em- embryo of this start is at the end of the 5th century. By um, the year 440, we had Leo the First, uh, sometimes called Leo the Great, and he was really purporting that he was the greatest of the bishops, and that it was to him the people should look as sovereign. So, we have here now um, the the turning point where the Bishop of Rome is absolutely claiming to be a spiritual sovereign over other bishops. It's no way accepted universally, but it's the claim is being made and made strongly. The helpless claim was a political decision of, again, Constantine. In the year 330, another key date in history, 330, he decides to move his political power out of the city of Rome and go to Constantinople, the city called after him. And it's there that he's going to rule his empire and not from Rome. And this leaves the Bishop of Rome far freer to establish a political base for himself and people to look to him in civil matters and not only spiritual matters. And uh, what enhanced this was the fact that the barbarians were now attacking uh, the Roman Empire. They were coming in from the north, hordes of barbarians who were pagans, and they were physically taking over the empire, but as they were physically taking control of the empire, they were being won over by the religion that was now taught in Rome. Not Christianity, but the religion of Rome. And here we have another famous turning point. It was in the year 496 that Clovis, who was the the king of the Franks, he is converted to the religion of Rome. And he gets himself baptized to become a Christian. And the Bishop of Rome at the time recognized him as the eldest son of the church, a title that France still has in the eyes of the Church of Rome. And so this was the beginning of a nation becoming converted because the king is converted and of course then the people are baptized and they are accepted into this religion of the Church of Rome. Now, if it stopped there, it would have been bad enough, but it didn't stop there. We had a similar conversion of the Burgundians of southern Gaul, of the Visigoths of Spain, of the Suevi of Portugal, and of the Anglo-Saxons of Britain. They all joined in becoming Christians by being baptized. So we have this huge influx of peoples into the 
Church of Rome who have gone through a ritual and uh, who know nothing of biblical conversion. And so we have now a, an immense structure that is building up way outside the city of Rome and other parts of the world and France being the first in particular to become a leading Roman Catholic power but this amazing thing then of a, of a, a church of Rome being set up outside the city of Rome but it wasn't recognized at all universally by, by elders and bishops and it wasn't accepted uh, while physically there was a lot of evidence that we have now a beginnings of a universal church. It wasn't until the middle of the 8th century that uh, serious uh, contention was made so that the minds of, of pastors who are now called bishops would be converted to this idea of a supreme uh, bishop in Rome and it was through a fraudulent document called the Donation of Constantine. Uh, this document purportedly was an official document that was sent from the Emperor Constantine to the Bishop of Rome, Sylvester, who was Bishop of Rome in 335. So in this document, Constantine bequeaths to the Bishop of Rome, Sylvester, 335, his imperial power, his palace, and many of the glories that went with the um, empire and its, its uh, territorial possessions. So this is the document that was to change Christendom and to convert many people to accepting Roman Catholicism. I'd like to read from the actual document that to give you some sort of a, a flavor for what was purportedly the words of the Emperor Constantine to the Bishop of Rome. He said, or he was reported to have said, we attribute to the See of Peter all the dignity, all the glory, all the authority of the imperial power. Furthermore, we give to Sylvester and to his successors our palace of the Latran, which is incontestably the finest palace on the earth. We give to him our crown, our mitre, our diadem, and all our imperial vestments. We transfer to him the imperial dignity. We bestow on the holy pontiff in free gift the city of Rome and all the western cities of Italy. To cede precedence to him, we divest ourselves of our authority over all these provinces, and we withdraw from Rome, transferring the seat of our empire to Byzantium, inasmuch as it is not proper that an earthly emperor should preserve the least authority where God hath established the head of his religion. End of this quotation from this fraudulent document. And this document was upheld as a genuine document for 600 years from that date. It was held to be there in 335 where it was an actual fact written. Uh, historians uh, now see most probably around 754. The Latin which he was written was not the Latin of that time, it was the Latin of the 8th century. And the title of Prince of the Apostles, Vicar of Christ, were totally unknown at the time of Sylvester. So the concepts are concepts of the 8th century and they're purportedly put in the, in the writing of Constantine to the Bishop of Rome. So it was that fraudulent document that really established legally the claims of Rome. And it was on that document that they put into their, their law and that they demanded submission because of the document 
and people were burnt at the stake and were um, horribly um, tortured who did not accept this document. This was the document that really established the Roman Catholic Church. The actual physical possession of territory was to follow. It was in the 8th century that the Aryan um, kings of Lombardy were attacking different cities in Italy and even purportedly coming to attack Rome itself. And Rome was in danger to the Aryans and the, the Lombards. And uh, the Pope of Rome, Sylvester the Second, and we could call him Pope at the time because now he's exercising the authority that later on became the hallmark of the Pope's he calls on Pepin the Short, who was mayor of a palace in France. And he calls on him for help. This is what Pepin needed, because Pepin was about to usurp the kingdom. He usurped the kingdom from the king and became king himself. And then to establish his kingdom, he came across into Italy, and he defeated the Lombards. And then he gave to the Pope of Rome territory and physical charge of cities so that the, the papacy begins now to have physical power as a nursing monarch and civil rule by which they are civil rulers besides uh, so-called spiritual rulers. Now, this donation by Pepin uh, became even more considerable under the more famous son. You must have heard this name, Charlemagne, Charles the Great, Charlemagne, the famous son of Pepin, who was to succeed to become master of most of the Romano-Germanic world. He, he, he conquered the nations, and he was the one now who was really the, the key political figure in, in Europe. He was called upon by the Bishop of Rome to help. And he came and placed even more cities under the, the authority of the Bishop of Rome. And then the whole thing was crowned as he was crowned. Christmas Eve in the famous year 800, the the um, the emperor of the so-called Holy Roman Empire kneels at the feet of Leo, the bishop of Rome, and he is crowned as the emperor, and he accepts the fact that the pope is the one who gives crowns and gives authority, and so the 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 whole power structure and the recognition now by uh, Charlemagne of the Roman Church and the giving of a bigger inheritance of actual physical cities uh, and civil authority to Rome has really established the Church of Rome. And the fraudulent document, the donation of Constantine, is truly bearing fruit because more and more are now giving in and admitting that there is a power in Rome and there is a universal church. And so we have the, the real bowing down now to the Bishop of Rome. Um, the... The tide that follows is, is um, horrendous because it is uh, years, centuries, nearly two centuries of debauchery and immorality. But it begins with Nicholas I in 865. He drew from the donation of Constantine the audacity to claim authority over kings and bishops throughout the empire and it was recognized to a great extent and the bishops of Rome became recognized as 
spiritual leaders and temporal leaders and that princes and kings should bow to him as had Charlemagne. And so we have two centuries of popes coming and going, some in their teens, and we have centuries of debased immorality of what was supposed to be the, now claimed to be the uh, seat of Peter. We have two centuries that are horrendous in immorality and some of the most immoral men in history were the men who sat on the papal throne during those two hundred years. And we had the, the two infamous women of history, Theodora and Morosia. These women controlled the papacy and they were the ones who decided uh, between lovers and illegitimate sons to who should sit on the throne of Rome. And some of that her reading of the immorality of those two centuries is, is, is unbelievable when we read of what was purportedly the papacy and ruling spiritually the seat of debauchery. Uh, and the way it was fought over the papacy by leading families in Italy to have control of the papacy. A huge turning took place in 1073 under a very famous man, Pope Gregory VII. He is most famous that he he is known by the name he had before he became Pope Hildebrand. And so in history books you'll hear talk of Hildebrand or Gregory VII, and you're supposed to understand that they're the same character. This man who had a great lust now for spiritual power, he put an end to the immorality, and he brought in strict Roman Catholic morality. It was to be so strict that the bishops no longer were to be men of one wife, they were to have no wife whatsoever. So this was the beginning of celibacy in the Church of Rome. He was, to, he was bringing in morality and ruling with power and authority, and all lust was to be finished with, and even marriage for, for elders was to be finished with, and so-called priests that they had. So this was the beginning of spiritual lust of the mind, whereby he was claiming that the rule of God was the rule of the Pope. And this man had a, 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 an ambition that outclassed all that had gone before him. He was going to establish that the political power had no say in the election of Popes, which they had in times past that it was completely independent, that they were over and above kings and political rulers, and that they were the supreme bishop of the world. And so this was the, the power grasp of Hildebrand. And Hildebrand tasted some of this. He, he didn't see the fulfillment of his desires, but the principle that he try to establish particularly that the Pope is the vicar of Christ and vicar taking Christ's authority not only spiritually but in temporal matters too civilly. This was realized by Popes that followed him and so by trickery, by arms and by crusades and anathemas and by different persecutions the popes that came after him began to implement what he desired. The two most famous men to come to the papal throne after Hildebrand were Pope Innocent III, who began to reign in 1198, and later on Boniface VIII. Innocent III was the one who started the Inquisition. The armies of the Crusades that went out to uh, take back uh, what was purportedly Christendom from the Muslims now turned on the Bible believers in France, the Albigenses. And those wonderful cities, renowned for their agriculture, for their order and for their morality, 
the remarkable cities of France, and even Albi itself, the city of Albi, these were attacked and men and women and children slaughtered. The butchery and the savagery that took place under that first crusade that was now turned on believers and became a war against believers, where Rome is now coming against the believers. We had talked about how they existed in different parts of the world, and now Rome wants to stamp out the Albigenses. And for the most part, they were fairly successful to this day. Albi, the city of Albi, is nearly 99% Roman Catholic. It's, it's really sad to see that they succeeded to a great extent in obliterating a group of Bible believers by a bloody warfare that was under the authority of the Pope. And that was really the beginning of the Inquisition. Uh, Boniface Eighth is infamous for his immorality himself, his ambition, his vanity, and his unscrupulousness in, in so many ways. But he was most famous for his dictum that if you were disobedient to the Pope, you were disobedient to God. And his dictate in what he called Unum Sanctum, the famous decree of the Catholic Church, he said the following, we declare, we say, we define and proclaim to every human creature that by necessity for salvation they're entirely subject to the Roman pontiff. This is still the official teaching of the Catholic Church. The book that I hold up is the Sources of Doctrine of the Catholic Church, and that is number 469, 469, usually called Denzinger, the man who had begun to compile it originally. The document that had been quoted by our present Ratzinger in footnote 51 of Dominus Isus' decree just before he became Pope. Um, it is still in the Catholic books that every human creature must be subject to the Roman Pontiff for salvation. This was the mindset, and this is how Rome acted civilly and in its decrees and in, in its torture and in its um, system of inquisition. We had a list of popes, and it is sad, but you can trace 75 popes in a row. And I've done this and gone through their names, and I can't give them all to you, but 75 in a row from Innocent III to Pope Pius VII. 75 popes in a row all agreed with torture and the burning of believers and others uh, because they would not submit to the Church of Rome. So the beginning of the 605 years of Inquisition. Now people get upset, and rightly so, because of the six years of the Holocaust. I mean, that was horrendous, you know, torture and... Uh, you know, death for Jews and some Bible believers. But we're talking now about 605 years of horrendous um, torture that was devised by the popes themselves and handed down in all the so-called Christian nations of the world. And it is um, worked out by reputable historians that tens of millions of Bible believers died. Maybe as many as 50 million, which uh, John Dowling upholds in his history of uh, the Catholic Church. 
maybe as many as 50 million, and he quotes different sources for that figure. So we have a huge number of Bible believers who are tortured. Any child from 12 years up could be tortured, and of course men and women were all tortured, and the, the graphic details are sickening when you look at some of the photographs, like the chair of nails, or the different uh, places where they put the body so it twists and turns to get most excruciating pain, or the whips that they had, or things to gouge out ears and, and, and take out eyes. The, the ways in which they tortured men, women, and children from the age of 12 upwards is quite unbelievable that anybody in the same mind or even calling themselves human, not even Christian, could ever do such things. But this went on for 605 years. And it is detailed in Wiley's history of the um, Protestant church where he deals with the Catholic church in detail. Uh, in book 15, chapter uh, 11, if you want to read some of the horrendous details, please pray for courage if you're going to read some of that, because uh, I was going to quote some of it, but it's, it's really too gruesome to say some of these things in public. Uh, it was Pope Innocent IV, the famous Pope with the same name as Innocent III, but Innocent IV, has started the dictates of how torture was to be done in 1252. Exterpanda was the name of the document in Latin, and it decreed you know, how far the limbs could be tortured until not taken off, but how far things were to be done. He was the one who gave the actual details of how torture was to be done, and then a whole line of popes after him. The Catholic writers are some of the best writers to tell you about this, and one of the most famous Catholic writers of all time, and I would ask you maybe sometime even to look up some of his writings on the internet, Lord Acton, if you put that into a search engine, you'll find many of his writings. He was one to expose Rome, even as a Roman Catholic himself, and he wrote about the Inquisition in the following words. He said, the Inquisition is particularly the weapon and particularly the work of the popes. It stands out from all those things in which they cooperated, followed, or assented as the distinctive feature of papal Rome. It was set up, renewed, and perfected by a long series of acts emanating from a supreme authority in the Church. No other institution, no doctrine, no ceremony is so distinctively the individual creation of the papacy except the dispensing power. It is the principal thing by which the papacy is identified and by which it must be judged. The principle of the Inquisition is the Pope's sovereign power over life and death. Whoever disobeys him should be tried and tortured and burnt. If that cannot be done, formalities may be dispensed with and the culprit may be killed as an outlaw. That is to say, the principle of the Inquisition is murderous, and a man's opinion of the papacy is regulated and determined by his opinion of religious assassination. End of quotation from the famous Roman Catholic Lord Acton. We had now uh, this backdrop of how things had become, and you would think it couldn't be any worse, where so-called Christianity is now really under the authority of Rome, and there's been so much uh, ceremonialism, and the dictates from fraudulent uh, documents, the most famous being the nation of Constantine, and now horrendous torture and inquisition and things could not be worse. And yet, with this backdrop, in the 16th century, we have the beginning of the 
greatest revival that the world has ever known. It is unbelievable because if anything we would not expect and the revival did not come in from what we might have expected, the, the Valdois, the Waldenses, Anabaptists or any of those, it came from what had been Papal Rome. And it was right across the empire. It was remarkable. And the five principles which all the reformers held to were the backbone or the solid foundation of the Reformation. That there's one authority, the written word of God, sola scriptura. That it is by grace that a, a sinner is saved before the all-holy God. That it is through faith that is in Christ and all glory, power and worship to God alone. These five principles, the scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, and all praise and worship to God alone, were the backbone of the Reformation with all the, the believers of the Reformation held to. And I'd like to quote, and I do so with permission, from The Heroes of the Reformation. is a book by Gideon and Hilda Hagsorts, and it is distributed and published by Harshland Publication. They say the Reformation possessed definite characteristics, many of which set it apart from any other revolution history. It is distinguished by its territorial scope. It began simultaneously and independently in various countries. At the time Martin Luther posted his 95 theses in the church door of Wittenberg in 1517, John Colette, Dean of St. Paul's in England, was denouncing the abuses of the Catholic Church and upholding the supremacy of the Bible as the rule of faith. Lefebvre in France and Zwingli in Switzerland were at the same time preaching against the evils of the Church and pointing to Christ as the door of salvation. Although Luther is called the originator of the Reformation, other reformers discovered the same message and preached as he did without receiving knowledge of it from him. There was a power that brought the Reformation into existence and made it possible. It was the Holy Scriptures. The Greek New Testament prepared by Erasmus with the help of scholars from all over Europe in learning led the way to truth and life. The reformers, once it got underway, had in existence a great friendship and fraternization among the reformers. There was a frequent interchange of ideas and hospitality. The Reformation actually began in Europe's citadels of learning, its universities. There were scholars such as Luther and Melanchthon at Wittenberg, Erasmus and Colet in Oxford, Bilney, Latimer, Cartwright at Cambridge, Lefebvre and Farrell at Paris. Almost without exception, the leaders of the Reformation were highly trained men of the generation. In some instances, such as Beza and Tyndale, they ranked high as men of letters, and others like Cranmer and Valdez of men who had responsibilities at court. All the preaching of the Luthers, the Latimers, the Zwinglies, the Knoxes would have failed to accomplish the Reformation if, at the same time, the Bible in the vernacular had not been provided for the ordinary common people. If, at the moment, Latimer was preaching at Cambridge, it had not happened that Tyndale, who had fled the continent, was smuggling back thousands of copies of the English New Testament, so that every Englishman could read the way of salvation for himself, there would have been no Reformation in England. In a similar way, in Germany, France, and in other countries. With these two phases must be combined an indispensable third, the invention of the printing, which made possible the translations of the Bible, and brought the price range within the common man's purse. Within a ten-year period, nations of Europe had received translations of the Bible in their own tongue. Luther had translated the in, 
in Germany in 1532, Lefebvre in France in uh, 1533, and Tyndale in England in 1525, and Brucioli in Italy in 1532. That is that remarkable quotation from the Heroes of the Reformation. The cornerstone was biblical faith and the recognition of scripture. We have had this remarkable turnaround whereby the Reformation came about right across what had been Roman Catholic Europe. And it was unbelievable. But the Roman Church did not go under and it came back with the Counter-Reformation under the Jesuits to try and take over universities and teaching establishments and to try and bring back Roman Catholicism. But Bible believers became now predominant in many nations and we had the, the huge turnaround in history that took place and I think we have to see that the Lord God himself brought in that revival. In our own day, if we think that things have reached a real, a real stage of apostasy that we're witnessing across the world, we cry out again for the Lord of the harvest to bring in true revival, just as he did in Judah in days of old, where there was apostasy in Judah that he can, the same Lord, bring back true revival so that we have Bible-believing churches. And so we see this remarkable thing. Now, how can we learn from the pages of history? We can learn that Christ Jesus did not recognize hierarchy. (laughs) He did not see or take any glory and in actual fact he withstood the Pharisees because they had their choria and their hierarchical system and they were trying to establish their own righteousness and he opposed them and Christ Jesus gave a message by which he gave the gospel he said this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent so that you could have a relationship with the all-holy God. That was his work, God's work, and it's all of grace. But it is you believe, and you enter into a relationship with the all-holy God. That's how we answer, as did the men and women of the Reformation. We answer with the gospel and what Christ Jesus himself taught. And what the Reformation had come back to was what the faith of the very earliest believers in Rome. The power of God unto salvation, but now the righteousness of God is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Christ Jesus, unto all and upon all them that believe. Paul getting enthusiastic in the same Romans, chapter 3, that perfection is realized. In the person of Christ Jesus, the righteousness of God is manifest and it's upon all them that believe. You stand complete in him. The wonder of the gospel. And that's what is needed as the answer to all types of hierarchical political structure. And so-called vicars of Christ purporting in all their robes to stand in Christ's place. The answer is the gospel and the, the power of the gospel unto salvation. That this is where we stand. And it is the difference between light and darkness. The apostle Paul warned about it. And why the believers were ready? Because they had warnings. They knew that there was the mystery of iniquity. Just as Christ Jesus himself is the mystery of righteousness, there was to be the mystery of iniquity revealed, Paul said in Second Thessalonians 2. 
And the one who would sit in the temple of God, calling himself God, calling himself the Holy Father, calling himself the Vicar of Christ. And that power would drink the blood of saints, of men and women, was, was prophesied in, in Revelation 17 and 18. The Valdois saw it, and many of the Valdois suffered under the Inquisition, the Waldenses, and Bible believers in my own Ireland up to the year 1172 saw it and wrote about it. The famous 707 years of Bible-believing history in my own Ireland, those people saw, if we are to be true believers, we must know who the Christ is and who is the one who opposes him. So that we give the gospel to precious Catholic people who live under a system that claims to be Christian and has, through all its history, persecuted Christians and withstood the gospel by its ceremonialism. And this is my heartfelt message that as you listen, that you would trust on the person of Christ alone and that you would know that joy unspeakable and full of glory that, that the Apostle Peter spoke about, that he took our sins in his body on the tree and that you would accept that and that you would have an urgency to explain this to precious Catholic people so that there could be a coming to true faith in Christ Jesus, even in the very city of Rome, that we would see men and women come to true biblical faith because that was the very roots of biblical faith in Rome. And this is my heartfelt cry, and we pray to God that the, we would see a touch of that in our own day by the power of God that is in the gospel, and as we go out in the name of Christ to proclaim that gospel. And to him be all praise, glory, worship, and honor, now and forevermore. Amen and amen. Praise God. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, 
they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.